0: Farming program with our equipped steel stockholders with Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years.
1: There's some exciting new tech and kit for potato growers to talk about today.
0: But what problem is it trying to solve? Because potatoes are grown underground, it can be really difficult to know how the potatoes are growing. So you might have areas of good performance and bad performance, but actually it can be really difficult to spot that.
2: Two farming charities are coming together. It's a win-win for everybody. And of course, Steve, the biggest thing to remember here is who are we here for, what are we doing? We're helping the the livestock farmer as well the animals, the livestock, and it's them that's going to be benefiting even more from the work we're now doing together.
1: And another local charity is launching A new initiative this weekend. Details coming up, plus important agronomy advice, the livestock and grain market reports, and the weather for the week to come. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. And that weather looks a bit more seasonal than of late. Hello, I'm Steve Orchard. Hope you've had a good week. We'll start with congratulations to Leaf's new Chief Exec, David Webster, who joins from the Grocery Division of Associated British Foods, where he's currently Director of Sustainability and External Affairs. David starts his new role in September and we'll get to know him on The Farming Programme soon. Two important farming charities are coming together very soon, Forage Aid and the Addington Fund, have a certain synergy and will be working together in many ways in the future, but still retaining their individual identities. I met with Forage Aid founder Andrew Ward at last week's Nottinghamshire County show. Andrew, so we understand what's happening, firstly, what does Forage
2: Aid do? So just briefly, Steve, yeah, um, Forage Aid is a charity that I started in 2013 when Cumbria and Wales had huge amount of snow at at the end of March. And there was thousands and thousands of sheep buried alive under this snow. Uh, the uh, sheep that weren't buried obviously needed feeding. A lot of feedstocks had been uh, lost under snow. So I used some of my hailage and I got Housem Sprayers, obviously a local Lincolnshire company, to donate the haulage and we sent a load over to, to Cumbria. That started uh, a sort of a, about a six month long um, uh, initiative that we got over 50 lorry loads across to Cumbria from all over the country, but a lot from Lincolnshire and the East Midlands. And Uh, And then that went on into Somerset in the Somerset floods in 2014. Uh, We then uh, decided to form Make Farage Aid an official charity, which that happened in 2015. We really are a weather-related charity. And over the last few years, since we started 10 years ago, uh, we've helped in the region of 150 farmers. We've moved around 450 lorry loads of feed uh, and straw uh, and bedding. And uh, that valued is roughly £850,000. So you exist principally to help out other
1: farmers who've been affected by bad weather emergencies. What about the Addington Fund?
2: The Addington Fund are, is a charity that started when Foot and Mouth came around and they actually were also helping in the livestock sector but they, they're predominantly now a housing charity. Obviously if farmers uh, are renting land and that tenancy comes to an end or farm workers uh, end up without being kicked out of a house or, or don't have anywhere to live then this Addington Fund have houses all over the UK and they'll help people uh, to find accommodation and they'll let farmers live and have tenancies in their houses. Their disaster relief fund is where they've been operating the relief to help livestock and to help uh, in the countryside like we've been doing as well. So there's a certain amount of synergy to bring the two organisations together. I think We will have a slightly wider remit now, because Addington want that, which is fine. They have the financial ability and the financial resources to do that, whereas that was something we were struggling a little bit with. But Forage Aid will still remain its name. We're still going to be helping livestock farms, and we're still going to be requesting assistance and and straw and feed from farmers all over the country. So nothing will change apart from we're going to be coming under the Addington umbrella. It's a win-win for everybody. And, of course, Steve, the biggest thing to remember here is who are we here for, what are we doing? We're helping the the livestock farmer as well the animals, the livestock, and it's them that's going to be benefiting even more from the work we're now doing together. Excellent, Andrew. Uh,
1: Good luck with your slightly changed remit and you're a slightly changed uh, structure but I'm sure you'll go from strength to strength and carry on helping out those who need it in the farming world.
2: Yeah we will Steve and thank you for everything you do because you've been great in in helping us promote what we do and also farmers all around the region who listen to this great farming programme, we still need your help and without your help we will not get to where we are today so thank you everybody.
1: We know that farming can be a rather isolated occupation, long hours on your own sat in a tractor or walking the fields another local charity, the Lincoln Rural Support Network, LRSN, has launched a new initiative aiming to help. It's called Time to Talk. Charity Manager at LRSN, Amy Thomas, tell us more.
3: What we're trying to do is get people thinking about the loneliness and isolation associated with working in agriculture. It can be quite a lonely job, you know, particularly as we're coming up to the summer months when when people are, are going to be busy harvesting and they're going to be working really long hours. Um, It can be quite isolating. It's not just the kind of impact of living in a rural area, but very often uh, home is work, work is home, your colleagues are your family and you perhaps don't see anybody else. So what we're trying to do is getting people to, to reach out to each other and extend the hand of friendship and really just to talk. And along the way, we hope they'll talk about how they feel and spread the word about LRSN as well.
1: OK, and how can somebody actually get involved in this? You say, uh, let's just talk. Is there is there a way of getting people together or are you just really promoting chat to your friends?
3: bit of both, really. Predominantly, this is a a campaign to raise awareness about our services and actually just to get people talking. We're going to do quite a lot of social media activity using the hashtag TimeToTalk, and we'll be asking people to share their photos of of bits and pieces that they're up to on social media, and we'll be doing the same. Uh, But we're also asking people to think about organising little events. So we're going to organise some ourselves, we hope. Um, But what we'd like to do is see people organising farm walks or coffee mornings or uh, other sort of little activities. And if they could do a bit of fundraising for LRSN along the way, that's fantastic. But so long as they're talking to each other, you know, and and, uh, sharing our contact details, then we'll be happy. And as we get
1: towards harvest, it seems to become even more isolated, doesn't it?
3: So it's definitely, you know, a a tricky time in in the farming year in terms of people feeling a bit more lonely and isolated. So we think this is the right time to try and and kick off uh, our campaign and hopefully get a bit of a buzz going about, you know, the loneliness, uh, but also how people can reach out and, and ask for help and support if they need it or if they just need someone to talk to, really.
1: And as you say, it's time to talk. So where can we go for more information, Amy?
3: If you go to uh, the LRSN website or any of our social media pages, we're on Twitter and Facebook, you will find us there. Like I say, we're kicking off this weekend, so hopefully you'll see some videos and bits. Otherwise, you can get in touch through info at lrsn.co.uk.
1: It's definitely time we talked. That's LRSN's Head of Charity, Amy Thomas. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. One person, apart perhaps from me, that's never had a problem with talking is our crop doctor, independent
4: agronomist, Sean Sparley. Morning, Sean. Yes, good morning, Steve. A dryish week then for a change. I've only taken about four mil this week and it does now start to look like things are settling down a bit. Mind you, I think they soon need to, you know. The septoria and the rusts in these winter wheats have had a lovely time since the early part of April and septoria in particular does not take any finding. And the level of concern for me is governed by how high up the plant it's got, what you put on at T1, how long it's been since that T1 went on and when you're going to apply, how much you're going to apply and what you apply at the T2 timing so starting with winter cereals then as I said last week winter barley is well into ear emergence now much more rust than the wet weather diseases like rinco and net blotch bit of mildew about too in those humid lower canopies so the T2s have been going on at a pace this week in my winter barley the awns are quite an important part of the yield management process in barley by the way so do try and spray when it's not too hot I don't think there's any danger of that at the moment as we know but that will minimise the risk of scorching those awns. So look after them, but don't forget the rest of the canopy. And particularly leaves four and five, way down in the bottom of the canopy there, because they contribute about a third of the final yield in barley. The ears make an 11% contribution along with the stems, which give 36%. You combine those two, the stems and the ears, and that contributes around 47% towards the final yield. But unlike wheat, you've got to keep leaves four and five clean and green too, because they contribute 15 and 16% to the yield, respectively and that's 78 percent of the yield contribution from the stem the ear leaf four and leaf five the flag leaf in barley only contributes a piddling four percent you get around seven percent from leaf two and about 11 percent from leaf three so just 22 percent from those top three leaves in barley and that's the contribution to the yield quite the opposite way around to winter wheat if you think about it because in wheat those top three leaves and the ear contribute the most 95% of the yield contribution in wheat comes from the ear you get 23% from the ear leaf one gives 43% leaf two 22% leaf three 7% so a 72% yield contribution from the top three leaves in wheat compared to just 22% for the same three leaves in barley so it's absolutely crucial to keep that upper canopy cleaning wheat equally important and often forgotten to manage the green area index and the green leaf of the lower canopy too in the barley crops. So keeping that lower canopy as green and disease free as possible in barley, very very important. T2 application conditions, absolutely crucial then. Use an adequate water volume you need to penetrate what are very thick winter barley crops in the main and of course in all of that T2 decision making, the nozzle choice is vital too. So do speak to your advisor and chew their ears off over which is the best nozzle for the job they should know what's best for the job you need to be able to carry that fungicide in much further down into the canopy in barley than you do in your wheat field so water volumes may need to be a little higher in barley too it's not all about how many hectares you can fit in the tank it's about you getting the best possible result and the best final return for what is now a very considerable expense particularly this year when it comes to fungicides they're up by about 20-25% on average I reckon this season and if you add to that the fact that you only get one go at getting your T2 right, it's clearly best to get it as right as you can get it first time. Way too late for growth regs, of course, in most fields of winter barley now. So do make sure that you check any outstanding recommendations if you've still got some PGR to apply. Spring barley is, of course, still getting their growth regs, and T1's going on as we speak in the spring barley. Winter wheat T2 well underway, higher levels of disease in the wheats than we're used to seeing. It's been a very easy ride, by by the looks of things for the last couple of seasons disease-wise. But big disease year, I reckon, this year. There may not be many leaves left, you know, on some of these wheat crops by the Lincolnshire Show, particularly where people have cut their costs to tailor the fungicide spend to a budget which is similar to last year's. Septoria tritici, as I've been saying, is having a lovely time out there. It's been perfect weather for Septoria tritici: Cool, wet, windy, and if you add to that the now frothy wheat canopies, it really is Septoria go-go. Remember, it's all about what you did at T1 and how long ago you did it, because in a year like this, about 25 days is about as long an interval as you want to leave between the T1 and the T2. So with virtually all of my wheats with the flag out now, even these later drillings, I'm on it and my T2s are well underway. Adjust your product choice and your fungicide dose, of course, according to variety and the disease pressure, but saving a few quid by dropping those rates at T2, I think will be a very bad idea this season. and that that disease out there looks unnervingly like it's under starter's orders to me. I'm finding a few more wingless misers persicky nymphs in untreated sugar beet fields as yet I haven't found them at threshold of one wingless nymph per four plants but if you've got non-cruiser dress beet do stay alert and keep your eyes open. Sugar beet dressed with cruiser should be covered for about eight to ten weeks from the date of emergence. Quite a lot of herbicide damage as well being reported in sugar beet crops from Lincolnshire and beyond our borders particularly where they've been applied to dewax small expanded cotyledon sugar beet high winds Couple to torrential rain, hailstones etc all de-wax the crop and if applications have been made within 48 hours of those events then that's when we're seeing the damage and that spray damage is being reported from the application of so-called safe mixtures just as the more caustic mixtures too so just be careful. Some re-drilling of sugar beet going on then in various fields in Lincolnshire and beyond. Mind you I think it has to be really bad to do that. I was always told that if you're down to as few as 40 or 45 plants to a chain, a chain being 22, yards or 20 meters if you're listening in French it should be okay half of the first drilling will always out yield a full second drilling and if you do re-drill sugar beet remember that if it's a failed cruiser dress crop you cannot re-drill the same field with more cruiser dress seed so please do stay legal Chocolate spot, a real challenge in winter beans this year, and it probably will be in the spring ones too as we go through the coming few weeks. Non-aggressive stage now, apparently. You could have fooled me, old sausage. Peas and spring beans, a little bit steady out there, to be honest. We just need some warm sunshine and they'll be off. Patience is a virtue bestowed upon very few agronomists and I think almost no farmers, as far as I can tell anyway. So let's see what the next seven days bring.
1: Thank you, Sean. If you're a potato grower we've some new tech and kit to talk about... For livestock and grain farmers, we'll look at the markets, and for all of us, the week's weather, next. The Farming Programme, with our
0: steel stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate, Gransom. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts.
1: How do potato farmers know what's going on with their crops in the ground without digging some of it up and having a look? But that's quite selective and only really tells you about that plant. A new piece of kit called TubaScan is under development by Lincoln-based Beehive Innovations and collaborators. And I paid them a visit this week and firstly got a bit of background on Beehive from General Manager Andy Gill. We're
5: here to effectively do R&D for the agricultural supply chain for farmers and but also right down the the chain through to the retailers as well. Uh, and we're here to uh, do multiple different things, but really it's about driving more value from the, the crops that are, that are coming out of the ground, making sure we can increase yields, increase marketable yields, more importantly, I suppose, uh, and, and drive value back into the, uh, into the farming community. Uh, and we do that by uh, adopting a whole range of different technologies to, to address real problems that farmers and the farming community actually have, because there's no point in just doing research for research sake. We need to be uh,
1: addressing the
5: issues that they have on the ground.
1: And you do this in collaboration with some other organisations, don't you?
5: Sure. When the farmers have particular problems, they will will come to us with the the issues that they have, and we will then formulate R&D projects, and we will identify the best people to do the particular projects that uh, that are needed and so sometimes that isn't directly within our skill set and so we collaborate with the, uh, often the academic community, people at universities including the University of Lincoln but also much further afield so we've got collaborations down in Bristol, in Manchester at Harper Adams University, as far north as the James Hutton Institute, up in Scotland. So yeah, we collaborate pretty widely with um, universities, academic community, but also with other companies as well who can
1: help and support the projects that we have available. And project manager Effie Warwick-John, what is TubaScan and what problems is it trying to solve?
0: Because potatoes are grown underground, it can be really difficult to know how the potatoes are growing. So you might have areas of good performance and bad performance, but actually it can be really difficult to spot that. So at the moment they will go and inspect their crop, they'll do field walks at different points in the season and take random small spot samples and they'll dig up the crop and they'll size it and see how it's doing. But obviously that's just samples and so it can be quite easy to miss patches of different performance if you're only looking at those samples.
1: So that brings us to TubaScan as the solution to that problem. Just describe the kit for me.
0: TubaScan is combining above and below ground sensing. So we have a camera to take images of the crop as it's emerging. So we collect plant counts and stem counts with the camera. At the minute we use a drone and we also use a camera on a remote controlled vehicle that our team have developed. Um, And we also have a ground penetrating radar. So that is seeing under the ground. And then this radar is then mounted on either a remote controlled vehicle that we can then drive through a field to collect data. And we're also working on developing a tractor mount. So if if a tractor is already going in the field to spray the crop, for example, can we just Put our kit on the back of it and off it goes and and collects this data.
1: And Effie, what information is this actually giving you?
0: Um, The spacing of your plants, and then that can kind of give you an indication of how uniform your crop's going to be across the field. And then with the stem counts, there's a proven link between the number of stems you have above ground and the number of tubers you have below ground. And then with the radar, um, we then use that to get the mass of the potatoes below ground and then we link all of this together with your stem counts, with your mass to understand the tuber size distribution um, that you've got across the field. Now I must stress this is development at the minute so it's a project that we're working on, that's the concept. We've had some really good results but we've still got some development to go before it's going to be a commercial product.
1: Okay, we look forward to hearing a bit more about that. What else is going on then? What other projects have you got on the go at the moment?
0: We've just finished a really exciting feasibility kind of proof of concept study looking at wireworm pests. So that's a really big problem in the in the potato community and other crops as well, but potatoes specifically. So they're the larvae of little click beetles and they um, kind of bore holes into the potato tubers causing all sorts of issues um, in the supply chain. So we have just finished a project looking at whether we can detect those wireworm on a camera on the back of cultivation machinery. So we're looking at, can we detect those and can we start to map those across the field? So again, the farmer knows where they've got a problem. So we've just got it to the end of a feasibility project that went, um, we had some positive results. And so we're now again, looking at what the next stage is, how do we develop this further? So that's really exciting. We are a year through a um, Project that we're working with Branson Potatoes mainly and the University of Lincoln, um, a crop storage company based in Norwich, and some farmers as well, um, looking at how we can grow potatoes with the lowest possible carbon emissions. We're doing all sorts of trials looking at alternative types of fertiliser, reducing cultivations, Um, should we use different varieties that are less resource hungry, can we store the crop differently, can we transport the crop differently, so that's really looking to almost step change the whole industry to really put those emissions down but still keep the yield at a profitable level. And then another one kind of on a different scale is looking at gas sensors, putting those in in a potato store and seeing if we can detect internal defects of the potatoes um, so we can, again, help to reduce food waste and stuff like that.
1: Interested? There's more on TubaScan and all of Beehive's projects at b-hiveinnovations.co.uk. And thanks to Effie and Andy.
0: Links FM Farming. Market reports.
1: Starting with livestock and from Louth Livestock Market, auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Morning, Oliver.
6: Morning, Steve. Another weekly roundup from here at Louth. Starting with the prime cattle and tremendous trades. He steers top at 305 pence per kilo and £1,782 for F. Wallace and Sons of Biscothor. Heifers top at £300 pence per kilo and £1,722 for JS Brooks of Strubby, while the Prime Bulls top at £286 pence per kilo and £1,542 for R.A. and Sons of Lincoln. On to the store cattle and steers and heifers this week, both top for W.H. Jackson Sons of Adlethorpe with steers at £1,000 and heifers at £1,110. Steers all in average £860, heifers all in average £971. Moving on to the sheep, starting with the lambs and another very similar number forward in a tremendous trade, leaving an SQQ of 361.79 pence per kilo and an all-in per head average of £154.82, showing just how dear those springers are when more could be sold to Vendors Advantage, topping for CE Badley uh, of Horncastle at £165 per head or £393 per kilo. Onto the hogs, and a very mixed show, as to be expected, for what is the third week of May now, with a tremendous trade still with an SQQ of 273.76 pence per kilo, with the best ended fed hogs easiest to place. Topping for JC Michael of North Summer Coats at £170 per head, or for Kevin Appleby of Summer Coats to £311 pence per kilo. Onto the cool sheep, use all in average £154.70. pence Rams all in average 190 pounds and 67 pence. Use top for J A and R and C J Jackson of Oscoby at 210 pounds per head. Rams top for Charlie Noble of Summercoats at 191 pounds per head. Finally, a handful of ewes and lambs. Average eighty-two pounds fifty-three per life, and top for links ground care of Stowe at eighty-six pounds per life. We're back on tomorrow with prime and cool cattle and all classes of sheep. This is Oliver Chapman for Masons and Lamb Market, and thank you.
1: Thanks, Oliver, and to the Grey Markets and guide prices with Open Kit Dickinson. Good morning, Kit.
7: Well, good morning, Steve. This week began with continued uncertainty regarding the Grain Corridor amidst conflicting opinions which resulted in some price stability in an otherwise quiet market. Russia repeated their view that there would be no extension unless their demands were met, which appeared to be a contradict to the more optimistic narrative emanating from the UN and Turkey. On Wednesday, it was announced that the corridor would be extended for a further two months despite no concessions on Russia's demands other than that they, the UN, Turkey and the Ukraine would keep working on them. Turkey's president, Erdogan, who faces a runoff in his quest to be re-elected, is a close ally of Putin, and he was quick to trumpet his role in extending the corridor to score some more political points. It appears that he is keen to facilitate the flow of grain via the corridor for two months, whilst making noises that Turkey could ban imports to protect Turkish farmers during their harvest. The market has become tired of Russia's threats about closing the corridor, but was quick to sell the news of the extension. Ukrainian 2023 24 wheat and maize production is expected to be down again, so should be less of a factor going forward. Ukrainian exports this season included unshipped tons of 21-22 season at the start of the war in 2022, which supplemented 2022 and 2023 surpluses. So, moving on to barley this week, the forecast global production for barley for harvest 23 is set to fall. The world stocks at the end of 23-24 season are expected to be at 19.9 million tons, down from 22.1 million tons at the end of 2022-2023. The northern hemisphere and Europe have had better crop potential. In the UK, spring barley is progressing slowly with some sunshine and better nighttime temperatures. Winter barley is out in here and overall looking well. With no trade for old crop malting barley and little interest in new crop, the focus will be on the weather. In France and Scandinavia, it has also been cold and dry in some areas, but apart from Spain, there are no real concerns. There is some new crop trade, but malting barley values, particularly in France and Denmark, are geared more closely towards wheat futures, and these have fallen to new low levels. Oil seed rape has had another volatile week with net losses of 7 euros. With two months until harvest in the UK, it is still time for the crop to change and for the market to change with it. So, looking at prices this week feed wheat for July 170 to 175, August new crop off the combine 165 to 171. November one hundred and seventy-five to one hundred and eighty-one, and February one hundred and seventy-eight to one hundred and eighty-four. Milling wheat premiums for old crop are circa sixty to sixty-five pounds. Barley for July one hundred and forty to one hundred and fifty, and the same price off the combine for August one hundred and forty to one hundred and fifty pounds a ton. November one hundred and fifty-one to one hundred and sixty-one, February one hundred and fifty-four to one hundred and sixty-four. For specific malting barley premiums for new crop, please speak to your local Openfield Farm Business Manager. All seed rope for June, 310 to 319. August, new crop, 306 to 316. And November, 310 to 321. Thanks, Kit.
1: The farming program. Five day forecast. Well, it looks like we might have a mild dry week for once, all down to the high pressure that keeps the breezes light and variable all week. Plenty of sunshine every day, some light cloud, and daytime temperatures nudging 20, clear skies overnight, dropping the lows to 7 or 8 Celsius. Well, that's it for now. Next week, we'll meet a smart cow and hear about a TV star's agricultural university bursary. The Farming Programme, Sunday mornings from 7 on Lynx FM, whenever you like on the free Links FM app. All podcast platforms, online and smart speaker, ask yours to play the latest Farming Programme. I'm Steve Orchard. Until next week, have a great week. The
0: Farming Programme
1: with Araquip Steel Stockholders
0: Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham BSI ISO 9001
6: Accredited